Today's reading is from Matthew 4, as the calling of the first disciples. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, said Jesus, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Amen. Thank you, Tony, uh, very much. Thank you, Andrew, too. Morning, everybody. Uh, have a cold. Have a sore throat. Should be home with a blanket over my knees. <laughs> Get away. Get away. Just Jesus, week six. Uh, I'm grateful that uh, a few of you stayed behind when they all went out to junior church, uh, that we might continue this together. Today... I want us to see that whilst most people the world over think that Christianity is a religion, Jesus actually wasn't religious in the slightest. We've been trying to get back to the real Jesus. And we've been shocked, I have been shocked already, by the kind of things that we normally, naturally, popularly believe about Jesus that simply have no place in the Bible accounts of him. And we've created a religion the world over, and Jesus wasn't religious in the slightest. Not only was he the most unreligious person you could find, but it was in fact the religious types, and in the main only the religious types, that he clashed with over and over again, with such frequency and tenacity. Yet incredibly, mistakenly, and destructively, I would suggest, we've made it a religion. A framework of do's and don'ts, a pattern of ritual and response, yet nowhere hardly do we see Jesus doing anything religious. Jesus, you'll discover if you read his stories with fresh eyes, and I hope at the moment that's what you're doing, making your way through those Gospels, he's not religious at all. So what is he into? If he's not into religion, there must be something else. And I want to suggest this morning there is something else. There is another R as you read these stories, imprinted on almost every page is not the R of religion, but the R of relationship. In fact, when you get to John's Gospel, you will see that the story is quite simply a series of relationships. Yet my observation of the church, the universal church, is that all too often it's dominated by religion. And worse still, it's often dominated by religion in such a way that relationship is squeezed and crush the church religious rather than relational. So we're into our programs and our services and our meetings. We're into our structures and our hierarchies and our ritual, even our buildings. And so often it all hides or at least attempts to mask 
the impoverishment, the poverty of our relationships. If it wasn't for programs, for services, for meetings, there would often in some places be little or no relationship. I think this is miles away from Jesus. What do you think? Miles away from Jesus. In many churches, if it wasn't for the programs, there would be little or no relationships at all. And yet Jesus didn't hardly bother about all the religious stuff. He spent all his time on relationships. And if we find ourselves behaving like Christianity is a religion, then I think we've got Jesus all wrong. We've got the wrong kind of Jesus. We're following the wrong kind of leader. I have three words that I want to suggest dominate the landscape of these stories. Followers, friends, and feasts. It's all about relationships. Take the word followers. Take followers first. Above all else, the legacy that Jesus left us was his group of committed followers. Without a legacy of followers, we would know nothing of all the other things that he's left us, the things we might naturally refer to, his teachings, his moral code, uh, his greatest, most dominant legacy, towering over all of those things, however important they are, is people. He left a group of people. So they're surrounding him at the end of his life. Trophies, if you like, of all that he had uh, achieved was not his books or records of some great feats, miracles, even uh, some kind of monument to his raising from the dead. But surrounding him as he came to the very end of his life on earth to go up into heaven were his followers. Jesus was about people. People whom he would call to follow him and who would go in turn to turn this world upside down by creating more people that would follow him. His legacy was a great people movement. It's all about relationships. So as we think about what it means to be a follower, I hope you've got open in front of you where Tony read from in Matthew chapter, uh, wherever it was, Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, page 968, if you can grab a Bible in front of you in the pew. I'd like you to have it open in front of you for these next few minutes. What strikes you about these particular verses? Absolutely. Give Alice a round of applause. Absolutely right. There was no hesitation in them following. Look what it says at once at verse 20. They left their nets and followed him. What do you mean at once? Not spending time in prayer, no discussions with the family, consulting the village elders. No, at once they left their nets. What was it that Jesus said that would cause them to leave everything at once. Then we go on, verse 22, immediately, no farewell party, no time to say goodbye, no sorting things out. What was it about Jesus? And what was it about what he was calling them to do and to become that meant that so instantly, so quickly, he would leave, they would leave everything to totally respond. I am so excited by the way God is calling people, raising people up to all kinds of different ministries in and around our church. 
But I tell you, one of the characteristics that could probably not be applied to any of us, myself and Kerry included, is this at once or immediately responding to the call of God. For so many of us, it's been a long, slow journey with much soul-searching and deep conversation and earnest prayer, a journey sometimes full of assurance and often uh, uh, lined with doubt as well. Sometimes it all seems so clear, other times so foggy you couldn't see your nose in front of your face. Why are we so slow to respond when these guys responded so quickly? We must be smarter than fishermen, don't you think? Present fishermen excluded from that remark. What did these disciples understand that we generally don't? Well, for five minutes, I want us to step back from this story and understand a little bit of the culture, the context that Jesus was in, that these disciples were in, and hopefully to see why there was nothing that would stop these men leaping out of that boat, throwing down their nets, waving goodbye to their father, if they could only remember it, to, uh, that he was there to go and follow Jesus. It goes like this. They were in a Jewish world. Ha, obvious. And in a Jewish world, the most prestigious, the most honoured, the most revered profession was that of a Jewish rabbi. So every Jewish boy and girl, but particularly the boys, started education with the goal of becoming a disciple of a Jewish rabbi. Now, Jews believe that God spoke to them initially through uh, Moses. We believe that too, by the way, uh, that God spoke to uh, his people initially through Moses and gave them what's called the Torah, or the instruction book, or the way. It's the first five books of our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay? First five books. This was like the foundation. This was like the the book of life, the, the, the book of the way. Everything was built on these five books. So, boys and girls started school at the age of six by going not to a state educational establishment, but by going to the synagogue in order to learn the Torah, the first five books. This was the first stage of their education called Betzafer. By around the age of 10, these pupils had memorized, what did I say? Memorized all five books. Respect. Makes our sats look a bit memorized. First five books. Flick through your Bible. First five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Most of us can't even read Leviticus. But they memorized it. Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, all there. Some students were beginning to struggle. (laughs) Not surprisingly. And it was clear that some students, it was clear already by then, that some students just wouldn't make the grade. Remember the goal was to become a Jewish rabbi. Students that weren't making the grade were what? They were sent back home to learn their family trade. So they went back to work with their father to learn to be a a carpenter, a fisherman, a tradesman, uh, whatever it might be. They hadn't made it. They were sent back home. The very best students went on to the second stage of education called Ben Talmud. This involved, amongst other things, memorizing, what did I say? 
memorizing the rest of the Jewish scriptures. That's the whole of the Old Testament. Almost right up to where your finger is in the Bible if you've still got it open in Matthew in front of you. Oh, you're not phased by that. Well, I, I, was, I, I, was, I, was, resp- I was quite impressed by that. Obviously, uh, uh, the whole thing. Most of us couldn't even summarize all those books or get them in the right order. Memorized the whole thing. It puts our encouragement to read a chapter a day into some kind of context, doesn't it? These guys were serious. If this is the word of the Lord, then we're going to be serious about it. Most, by the age of 14 and 15, have been sent home and are now apprenticing in the family business. They've done brilliantly, but they're not going to make the great. But the best of the best of the best go on to Bet Medrash. As part of that process, you could apply, no guarantees, but you could apply to a Jewish rabbi to become that rabbi's disciple. To be a rabbi's disciple meant not just learning all that the rabbi has learned, but much deeper than that, it meant learning to be like the rabbi. It meant doing the things the rabbi does. That's what it meant to become a disciple of a rabbi. Now there were different rabbis. Each rabbi had maybe a slightly different emphasis, a different interpretation on the law. So when you became a particular rabbi's disciple, you were said to be putting on or taking on the yoke of that rabbi. You were wanting to take that particular rabbi's yoke, that particular rabbi's way of interpreting the law, way of looking at life, way of understanding, to take that yoke upon yourself so that you would know what the rabbi knew in order that you might do what the rabbi does, in order that you might be who that rabbi is. Wow. So you go to apply, you go to a rabbi, and you request to become one of his disciples. And uh, uh, you're still there. You're with me. It's worth it. If we get to the end together, it's worth it, I think. You go to a rabbi, and the rabbi grills you. Have you really learned the scriptures? Have you really understood my yoke? But much more important than that, the rabbi is asking the question of this young lad, this teenager, this student, can this student do what I do? Has this student got what it takes to become like me? And the rabbi might say, it's really clear that you love God, it's really clear that you love the law, but I'm sorry Go and learn the family trade because I don't think you will make the grade. I don't think that you have what it takes to become like me. But if the rabbi, if the rabbi sees that the student loves God, sees that the student has studied the scriptures carefully and diligently and has what it takes to become like him, the rabbi will say to the boy, come, follow me. Heard those words anywhere? Come, follow me. And you would leave your family, your friends, your synagogue and your village and devote your entire life to becoming like your rabbi. That's what it means to be a disciple. Now most rabbis in the ancient East began their teaching age 30. 
I hope your Bible is still open at Matthew chapter 4. Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 is about 30 years of age. And he's just begun his public teaching ministry. So he is assuming the role of what? A rabbi. Now, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, verse 18, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake. Why? Because they were... So if they were fishermen, what was true about them? They hadn't made the grade. These poor guys had been sent back home. They were not the best of the best of the best. They'd failed to make it. They'd failed to become what every Jewish boy longed to become. They'd seen their dream broken. They'd faced the failure. They knew what it was like to be off the team. And they were left to settle with their lots, working the seas of Galilee. They'd been sent home. And then verse 19, there is this incredible twist. A rabbi comes. Here was a rabbi not being sought out, but a rabbi seeking them out. And in the three most poignant words every Jewish boy had longed to ever hear, Jesus said to them, say it with me, come, follow me. Jesus was saying to these fishermen who'd lost hope in themselves, who believed they couldn't make it, Jesus was saying, I think you can do what I do. I believe you can be like me. I choose you. Of course you drop your nets. You drop your nets and everything else. Of course you'd leave your boat. He was a rabbi, the most honoured, revered man in Israel. You can do what I do. You can become like me. Same for James and John. They're apprentices now in their father's business. It says they're helping their father. They're not good enough. They hadn't made the grade. But Jesus says, even though you didn't make the grade, even though you've gone back to your family business, even though you think that's all you can do, come follow me. I believe in you for so much more. I believe you can be like me, and I believe you can do the things that I am doing. Jesus said, chosen. Have you ever been chosen? In fact, even when I mentioned the word, some of you are already back in the playground, aren't you? When they were choosing teams... You, 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 you. And then the captain, rather magnanimously, I can't even say it with a cold, says, oh, you can have them. And you don't even get chosen. It's not that you were chosen last year. Oh, well, you can have that lot. Or you remember when you were chosen, you were chosen to be a, a captain or to lead something or, or you were given some kind of responsibility or honor, chosen for a job, a, a team, a reward. We love to be chosen. When my kids come out of school and they've been chosen for something, I can see well before they're near enough to tell me. Because their chest is out and their shoulders are back and their head's held high. You can see the brightness in their eyes. I've been chosen. Someone has believed in me. Someone has picked me. I was wanted. Of course, as adults, we get much more sophisticated and we're far too cool and calm about that. And we don't care whether we're chosen or not, do we? Rubbish. Rubbish. There's that kid in every single one of us here. And that's why Peter and Andrew left their nets at once. That's why James and John dropped their needle and left the boat. 
So often our trouble, our delay, our endless procrastination about what God might be asking us to do is that we haven't grasped that we're chosen. Chosen by God, chosen by name to be his disciples. And if he's choosing us to be his disciples, it means he believes we can be like him. It means he believes that we can do what he does. Listen with your heart. Jesus chose the people who didn't make it. He chose the people that had been sent back home. He chose the people whom others had declared they don't have what it takes. Can you imagine the joy of those disciples? Hello? Do you know, they'd been at school with, you know, uh, I'm going to call him David, because David was the swat in our year. Everybody hated him for it. (laughs) And we're over it now. You know, there was David and Tom and George, and they were just so clever. They could, they could memorize the whole thing before they got out of nappies and stuff, you know. And they would be rubbing shoulders and from time to time. They were in the nice posh house and the nice flowing gowns with disciples following, and they were fishers. So all their life, all their life, people didn't travel very fast, same village, same village. All their life, they were the ones that hadn't made it. And then Jesus said, Jesus, the rabbi, that everyone was beginning to say about him, wow, he's way better than all the other rabbis. This guy preaches like he knows what he's on about. This man's got a a new, a different kind of authority. Jesus has chosen me. No wonder they left their nets and followed. He was saying, I believe in you. I believe you can do what I do. I believe you can be like me. And he says the same to you. You have got what it takes to be like him and to do the things that he does. Many of us haven't quite heard that in our hearts. And that's why we're still huffing and puffing about the call of God on our lives. We're still not quite sure and we're trying to figure it all out and we're not quite sure about this, that and the other and we're scared to make a move because it is a big risk and it is a huge risk to do what God is asking you to do. But if only we knew, if only we knew in our hearts that the God of heaven not just the best rabbi, says, I choose you. And I believe in you. I believe you can be like me. And I believe you can do the things that I do. Wow. Hello? Yeah? Wow. If we got that sorted out in our church, a whole lot more people would be responding a whole lot more quickly to the call of God on their lives in a deeper and greater way. The world had said to Peter, Andrew, James, and John, you didn't make it. You're only good enough to fish. And Jesus says, hey, you think these guys are only good enough to fish. I'm going to show you fishing. I'm going to take these guys that you think are only good enough for that, and I'm going to do something that's like this. You think they're fishers of of fish. I'm going to make them fishers of men. I'm going to take you and me in our ordinary, everyday lives. We're going, this is probably my lot. This is about where I am. And God says, no way. I want to take you from where you are, this, and I'm going to do this with it. And the world is going to be amazed. And so ordinary, unschooled, uneducated fishermen began a movement that changed the whole world. Because they believed in Jesus, yes, but more, much, much more, because Jesus believed in them. And so it's always been. 
Always people haven't seen God's potential in their lives. Moses goes, I can't do it, I stutter. Abraham says, I can't do it, I'm too old. David said, I can't do it, I'm too young. Solomon said, I can't do it, I'm too rich. Naomi was too poor. Jonah ran. Timothy had ulcers. Reb was a prostitute. Gideon doubted. Martha worried too much. Noah got drunk. Paul was a murderer. John the Baptist was just well weird. They go, I can't do it. God says, come, come. Come follow me. Come to your ordinary everyday life and make me, allow me to do in you more than you can ever, ever imagine. You can be like me and you can do what I do. And so a movement of anybody's, the not good enough, the ones who hadn't made it, changed or began to change the course of human history. Hey, people just like you and me, people that would misunderstand him like we do, people who would fail him like we do, people who would be slow, so slow to understand like we are, people with hard hearts, lacking in faith, and from such a ragtag band, Jesus founded the church that hasn't stopped growing in 20 centuries. Yeah, hallelujah. Have you ever looked at the church and wondered how on earth it stayed alive? Honestly. Jesus calls us, come, follow. But notice we said about his yoke. Remember that bit? The rabbi's yoke. What's, what's Jesus' yoke? What's Jesus' particular interpretation, emphasis, way of doing things? Well, Mark tells us about Jesus' yoke. He says it's like this. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Two aspects of his yoke. To be with him, to be sent out. If you're expecting something religious, then you're going to be disappointed. Instead, it was massively relational. Be with me, and then be sent out like me. In fact, you can just stick with the first one if you like. Be with me. You know, you can do anything you like in life as long as you're with Jesus. That's all the Bible says, essentially, in terms of a moral code. Do anything you like as long as you're with Jesus. Everything can be reduced to that. And if you're with Jesus, you will become like Jesus. And if you're like Jesus, you will become broken open and poured out for the world like he was. If you become like Jesus, the same love that compelled him out of heaven to earth will compel you out of your comfortable circle of familiarity to reach to those around you. As you are with him, so you'll be like him. To be with him, to be sent out. And if you're like him, you will have friends. Some of you are going, whoa, I'm listening now. I've never had a friend. Woo. You'll have friends. Steady might not be the kind of friends you think. You see, he had followers. And he had friends. So must we. He was incredibly relational. He was far, far, far more relational in my experience, than the stereotypical Christian who is much more into rules or ritual, even good rules and good ritual, than relationship. The average Christian appears to me to be far more into the ways of church, the aspects of their religion, than they are about creating the risky, vulnerable kind of relationships that Jesus spent his time building. What do you think? How might we describe Jesus' approach to friendship? It seems so obviously unlike our own. It seems that the more unsavory the character, the more Jesus felt at home with them. And maybe more remarkable still, 
these people found Jesus appealing to the prostitutes, the untouchables, those who made a living by cheating or swindling. Those people somehow gathered round him like moths to a flame. But the respectable people, on the other hand, those who had a lawn to mow and potpourri in their front room, Jesus seemed to be always struggling with. So think about this one. Move from Matthew to Luke. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's just a little bit on. Page 1036. I'm not going to read the whole story, but I'm going to summarize it uh, for you, and you can check that it's there and, and read it at home. Remember, Jesus has called us to be what? To be like him. He believes we can do what he does. Jesus goes to the house here of a respectable Pharisee. It was an honor to be invited to such a home. It's the sort of invitation we would have loved to have had. You never guess, I've been invited to Simon the Pharisee's house. It's the sort of well-to-do, you know, finest decor. Every corner spick and span, the food that you'd never tasted, knock spots off Marks and Spencers, all that. The conversation would have been dignified and refined and way above respectability. This was a place to be. And if you'd been invited to this kind of place, the, the little invitation would be on your mantelpiece for weeks ahead of time. Do you know the one? <laughs> Look where I've been invited. <laughs> you know, you're all ready to go. Best frock, all that. You get into the meal with this guy, and a prostitute walks in, bringing with her everything that this house was not. You can begin to imagine, can't you? Everything that this house was not. And in the exchange that followed, Jesus finds himself siding with this woman of very dubious character and falling out with his well-to-do host. However much he tried, Jesus couldn't get on with the, the, the respectable, pious people. And he seemed so naturally to fall on the side of those that were on the edge, on the outside. So why is the church so often much more closely resembling the pious people that Jesus had so much trouble with? And why is the church, quite frankly, most often the kind of place that the people who flocked to Jesus would never dare come near? That's a fair question, isn't it? I have to hold my hand up, you know, I'm, I'm at the top of the tree here, or whatever that means. You know, it, this bothers me. This bothers me, because you kind of smooth it all over in some kind of religious -y way, and you go, are we really like Jesus? No, actually, not much. It's been described as a great reversal, and I think it is. We've created churches so unlike Jesus that it's almost unbelievable. We're so often so much more at home with the Pharisee kind of chap that Jesus fought against than the kind of friendships that Jesus loved. Or the question another way, Jesus, would his friends be ours? What do you think? What, why, why is it suddenly, or why do we find ourselves in this place where it's all upside down? We don't seem to be, I don't seem to be, it's just as much about me as I'd ever dare say it's about any of us. We're in this together. We find ourselves on the other end of the seesaw, don't we? We're on the wrong end. If Jesus turned up, we'd be bouncing the wrong side. I think it's largely because he was passionate about relationships and we're busy with religion. He loved people and they knew it, so he clashed with the religious types because they didn't love people. Not like he did. 
They loved their laws. They loved their rules. Sometimes they loved their rules so much that this uh, man was, had his hand healed on the Sabbath. And they, they couldn't be excited about it because it broke a stupid rule. They loved their status, their position in society. They loved their moral superiority. I think a church is like that sometimes. We love our worship. We love our meetings. We love our fellowship. Oh, we dress it up in religious talk. We even love the word. We love the fact that our sins are forgiven. We love the fact that our future is secure. We love the fact that we have found the truth. And I'm for all of that. Nothing wrong with any of those. But surely the challenge of Jesus' life is not how much do we love all those things, but how much do we love these people? This bothers me. And you're sad that you came this morning. And I know how you feel. You see, when people come to me burdened or we have conversations about stuff and, you know, one with another when we get talking and we're getting a bit hot under the collar, well, what are the things? It's so often to do with our church. It's so often focused on the way we do things. Maybe the services. Are the services too traditional? Not traditional enough. We've all got our opinions about that. Now, don't get me wrong, these conversations are really important and I'm always glad that we have them and we must keep having them. But... If we have these conversations that are all about us and all about our church and never talk about our burden for those trapped in poverty or those caught in addiction or those oppressed or those without rights, if we're not talking about the people of Ipswich who are lost and facing a lost eternity on their way without God and without hope is what the Bible says, we end up like the Pharisees, trapped in our ritual, trapped in our religion and in danger of losing sight that it's all about relationship. You see, we can sit in our quiet times and we can sit here on Sunday and we can sit in our small group and we can pray earnestly, Lord, I want to be like you. And we can ask the question in our praying, Lord, how much am I like you? But as I read these stories of Jesus, I find myself thinking, well, if I haven't rubbed shoulders with someone whose disease has made them an outcast, and if I haven't found myself close with people whose lives are messed up with sin and evil, and if I haven't listened to the weeping cries of someone struggling in poverty or abuse or failure, then I'm not much like Jesus. See, the man from heaven, the man revealing God, the one who is God, he's passionate about relationships and nothing could get in the way of that. So he called them to be fishers, catchers of people. This movement. And we can be too much like the Pharisees, good, respectable, religious miseries, caught in our religion, locked in our codes of behaviour, absorbed by a whole host of religious ritual. And Jesus walked right through all that. He walked right through to love the hurting, to touch the untouchable, to heal the broken, to found the lost. Don't we just love him? Utterly brilliant. Oh, to be like Jesus. You know, sometimes I'm, I'm so fed up being like a Christian, I just want to be like Jesus. You ever feel like that? Just so fed up of all the claptrap that we buy into and absorb and it's all around us and I'm responsible for peddling that as much as any of us. Just want to be like Jesus. His love of people, such a driving principle that he ends up in a whole host of places he never wanted to be. At the age of 12, where was he? In his father's house, he said, where? He said I just want to be here, I love to be here. But he laid that aside. He spent most of his life not in his father's house. He spent most of his life 
in places I suspect in many ways, in terms of the place, he would rather not have been. Third word, he was into feasts. Being a social animal was one of the things they leveled at Jesus that he was unable to defend. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Can you imagine if that was said of my ministry? Simon came eating and drinking. It would all be over. That would, that would be it. You'd, you'd hound me out of the church. But the Gospels say it about Jesus kind of as a badge of honor, defining the kind of ministry he had. Jesus was a social animal. Most Christians I know aren't. We're not into parties and staying up late. We like Horlicks and Christian periodicals. Sometimes, though, maybe at a wedding or something, we find ourselves inadvertently, against our best wishes, at a party-type place. And you enter the room, you can spot the Christian from a hundred paces. We're just sitting there like lemons, gasping for air like fish out of water. We look ridiculous, as comfortable as a crocodile in a handbag factory or similar. And all that comes out is our judgment. All that we can manage to get across is our disapproval. Was Jesus like that? No way. They invited him to the party. They said, we're going to have a party. We need Jesus kind of people at our party because they make it happen. Now, was Jesus less bothered by these people's sin than you are? Was Jesus less troubled by what they were doing to themselves and others than we are? No, not at all. Jesus was appalled by much of the, what he saw of the underworld of Palestine. What a, what a heartache for a holy God to see such unholiness. But he loved the people, so he stuck with them. He embraced them, he delighted in them, despite what they did. And if it meant going to places he would rather not go, he went. And if it meant being with people doing stuff he would rather wish they would not do, he did. It was dirty, it was messy, but the more dirt and the more mess, the more Jesus seemed to embrace it in order to reach the people caught up in it all. I have to say with great feel that something's stirring in us here. And some of you are beginning to take really great risks to reach out way beyond where you're comfortable. It's messy, it's dirty, it's complicated. You get misunderstood, you get maligned, you get your face with stuff you don't want to see, touch or hear. But I say to all of us, it's in those moments, more than any others, more than many others, more than all the moments, in those moments when we're least religious and most relational, we've caught something of the man who came from heaven, who said, I dare you, come follow me. Hey, you a follower? You a follower? Do you know the thrill of being chosen? Do you know Jesus wants you on his team to be with him and to be sent out? Mission and maturity, it's everywhere in the Bible. And when he said, follow me, it was a call to be like him because he believes that you can do what he does. He believes you can be like him. Is that what you've said yes to? Forget all the religious stuff. You said yes to being like Jesus if you're looking for something religious, then Jesus isn't your kind of guy. So are you a follower? And hey, who are your friends? Who are your friends? And where do you feast?